May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So it's pretty good to be back, although I did have an excellent time while I was away. Uh, so we'll just do a quick scan of what I did. Uh, when I went to America, I had three days in Chicago, uh, which was wonderful. One of the highlights for me was the Bites and Brews bike tour, which introduced me to the Deep Pan Pizza, which anyone from New York will tell you is not a real pizza, but really a pizza pie. And uh, the Chicago-style hot dog, which you can see here. And uh, you'll notice that Chicago-style hot dog does not have ketchup on it. No tomato sauce, anything like that. That is sacrilege. It does have real chilies in it, which is a surprise when you're not expecting it. It's full of goodness. It's very healthy. Uh, then I chaired a meeting in Long Island for five days, very productive meeting, and some of the fruits of that are quoted uh, in the parish magazine, which hopefully will come out next week. It should have been out this week, but we weren't quite up for it. Um, and then I had a few days with some friends in both Long Island and upstate New York in Hyde Park, which is where uh, FDR, Frederick um, Roosevelt, Frederick, whatever his name was, FDR, and his... Uh, wife came from. So uh, the Hyde Park is where the Roosevelts came from and um, his mother's family came from the next parish up the road where my friend is priest in charge, so the Livingston. So that was all quite a lot of fun. And I went to Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, kind of place that uh, she did all her work out of. So that was, that was amazing to be able to do that. And um, as part of that, I was asked to preach and preside at an Episcopalian church in Wontog in Long Island. So I um, got Bishop's permission, so that was good. My sermon is filmed and on YouTube, if you want to have a look at it, it's very long. It <laughs> wouldn't surprise you. And then I had a few days in New York, uh, and my daughter had recommended a few shows for me to go to, and one of them was Fiddler in the Roof in Yiddish. So that was, that was an exciting thing. Is the set for the play, uh, and um, it was great to hear this musical in the language that the stories out of which the musical Fiddler in the Roof came from. So it was set in Russia, and the stories were written in Yiddish. And I was in a theatre filled, as you can see there, uh, with Jews, which is an unusual thing for us coming from New Zealand. And York is one of the places where Yiddish is still spoken in the Jewish community. So there's a significant Yiddish-speaking community. So there would have been people in the theatre that did not need the subtitles. The subtitles were on either side on those big screens. So it was a story for our time, and I'm going to come back to that. And I come back this week to uh, the readings that we've just heard, which are, well, interesting readings. We have... Uh, Philemon, uh, where Paul is returning somebody who was a slave to his master but trying to renegotiate a new relationship. We have Jeremiah, uh, where Jeremiah is talking about God's future not being set in stone. How often do we think about God's future set in stone, but in fact is pliable and open-ended like clay, uh, depending on what's going on. Uh, and then we have this hard-hitting reading from Luke. What do we do with this Jesus who talks about hating your father and mother, hating your family, and giving up all your possessions? What are we to make of all of that? 
Well, I keep saying, and we'll have to keep saying, I think, that when we read the Gospels, we need to read them as theology and not as history or biography. The writers of the Gospel took the Incarnation very seriously, and the Incarnation says that in Jesus we meet God. That's what that's about. And so when they wrote their, story, when they wrote their Gospels, they used the stories of Jesus' life and ministry to show us the character of God. Who is God? And in Luke's Gospel, the center around this passage from uh, Luke 4, from the scroll Jesus reads in his hometown of Nazareth, the scroll of Isaiah. In the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That one spits out. When we read the rest of the Gospel, we need to remember that it's Luke describing how Jesus lives this out. So this is Jesus' mission statement, we might say, and the rest of the Gospel is how Jesus lives that out. And as Jesus lives that out, Jesus, Luke is saying, is helping us see that this is the character of God. If you want to describe God, this is what God is like. God is the one who brings good news to the poor, in Jesus and now. That God is the one who releases captives, in Jesus and now. That God is the one who is bringing recovery of sight to the blind, in Jesus and now. That God is the one who sets the oppressed free, in Jesus and now. So when we talk about who is God and how we might describe God, Luke is saying, this is how we describe God. And when we ask the question, where might God be found in our world? Well, in these places where the oppressed are being set free, where people are, the blind are recovering their sight, where captives are being released and where good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Luke also invites the hearers to apply those questions to themselves, to wonder how God is bringing good news, to wonder what holds them and us captive and how God is releasing us, to wonder how are we blind and in what ways is our sight being restored, in what ways are we oppressed and how are we being set free. Which brings us to today's reading. In today's reading, we hear Jesus name two things that blind, oppress, and hold captive. Possessions and family. So, possessions may be not so surprising. Possessions have and will always blind us and hold us captive. When we have possessions, we need to protect them. And because we need to protect them, they limit too often our ability to be hospitable and generous because we are busy protecting those things. They also provide us the resources to be hospitable and generous, but too often it flips around the other way and we build walls around it to protect what is ours. Jesus knew that 
And so repeatedly in his Gospels he said, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Hard things for us. I like my possessions. I'm not super enthusiastic about giving them all away, but I need to hold them lightly, knowing that yes, they're good, but they also, also blind me. They limit my ability to be as God would like me to be. Family structures, however, that might surprise us. I mean, Christians often talk about you know, the importance of family and how our societies are built on families. And here we have Jesus saying, hate your mother and father, hate your brother and sister. What is that about? Well, in Jesus' time, as still in many places around the world, families, the family structure defined who you were. It defined your purpose in life, your place in the world, and who it is that you should care about. And you should care about your family and those linked to your family. So, in many ways, this provided safety and security and structure within society. But it could also be a bad thing. A thing that oppressed and blinded people and held them captive. One of the common themes across all the Gospels is Jesus' use of the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. The big question, the question that is asked a little bit before the story in Luke's Gospel is, Who is my neighbour? That is the question that the young man who wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life asked Jesus, Who is my neighbour? And he was expecting a very particular answer. He didn't get a very particular answer. He got the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says that our neighbours are everyone. Everyone. Especially those in need. Well, in fact, what he says was, our neighbours are everyone, especially those who provide help to those in need. Now, it was an outrageous story. It would be kind of like telling someone, someone telling Trump the same story, but the hero in this case being an illegal Hispanic alien. Or a Muslim. It had that kind of punch to it. And the problem for the man who asked the question, and for the problem for many of those listening to Jesus' teaching, was that the family structures in Jesus' time prevented people from seeing that. Because your neighbour was your family and those linked to your family. And everyone else was outside of that circle. You did not need to care for them. And that, that was the shocking countercultural piece of Jesus' story. The family structures locked people into a very narrow understanding of neighbour. It was the understanding that the man who was asking the question of Jesus was looking for. And surprisingly, he got the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we are addressing this in what Jesus is talking about today. This limiting power of the family structures that, yes, provided safety, yes, provided security, but also blinded people to what was going on around them. 
particularly those with resources. He uses this love-hate language a little bit later in Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 13, when he talks about you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other. And I think in many ways that's what Jesus is doing here. When we love our family, then we end up hating our neighbours. When we love our neighbours, effectively he's saying we will hate our family. He's calling for very different priorities. In Jesus' world, the family was the number one priority. Your life was about defending your family's honour, your family's place in the world. And he was calling for a different set of priorities, which in effect meant you would be seen to hate your family. And that got Jesus into a lot of trouble. The question then is for each of us. What blinds us? What holds us captive and impoverished? What do we need liberating from? When I was sitting in the theatre watching Fiddler on the Roof, I was struck by the theme of the coming violence and eventual eviction of the people out of the little Jewish town Anatevka. And they knew that bad things were happening in other parts of Russia, Imperial Russia, so it's said about 1903, 1904 in Imperial Russia. They heard about the pogroms, but they would not believe that this would happen to them in their small town. And even when violence erupts at the eldest daughter's wedding celebrations, they still would not believe that this was going to be a constant. This was a one-off, a freak occurrence. They didn't need to worry about this violence. There was no need to leave. There was no need to act. It's the same as true when you read Elie Weissel's Night, the story of his growing up in Sigurd of Transylvania while the Second World War raged around them. And again, people said, you have to leave, you have to get out. You need to find ways to get to America, to England, whoever will accept you. But there was this disbelief that anything bad could happen to them in their place. Even, even when there was a takeover of the government by fascists and the Germans were invited in, there was a belief that they would not come that far. They would only stay in the big cities. Eventually, when the Germans came, it was too late. They were blind. They were held captive. They believed the status quo would go on and that nothing bad would happen. So they refused to act. Perhaps they didn't know how to act. And then, and then it was too late. At our meeting in Long Island, we spent a lot of time talking about climate change. In some ways it's hard to see the importance of it. It's hard to know how to act. It's hard to believe that anything bad will happen. It's hard to find the energy to respond to it. When I was in New York, I just happened to be cycling along the Hudson River Walk when Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish climate activist, sailed into New York and docked. So, I don't know if you saw the news reports of all the people cheering 
I was kind of off to one side taking photographs and then I cheered. When, when I got, like I was cycling along, there was all this honking and cheering and I went, it's kind of like the America's Cup. Is there a race on or something? And then I looked more closely and I went, oh no, I know what that is. But I had my bike for half an hour and I went over the half an hour so I had to pay more money for my bike. That was a bit sad. But it was inspiring. It was inspiring to, to see the young people who were there with her, to hear her speak uh, and her urgent cry to act. And then I come home and I read some of the articles in the press, um, people who deny that climate change is happening, people saying the government is doing too much, why are we doing so much, we should just leave it, let it, leave it to the scientists to solve. And then so many of the comments reminded me again, including some of the comments from some of our leading politicians, and I find myself again in Sigurd and Anatevka. The status quo will hold. We don't need to do anything. It won't be that bad. We are as blind as they were. We too are held captive, believing that the status quo will go on, that nothing bad will happen, refusing to act, and when people try to act, mocking them. Perhaps we don't know how to act. Surely it won't be that bad. So for me, the thing that I need to be less blind about is this issue and how I respond to that. So what about you? What about you? What are the things that you are being asked to let go of? What is it that blinds you, impoverishes you, holds you captive? Jesus is shockingly inviting us to consider what might blind us to where God is at work in the world? And what stops us joining that work? So take a moment to reflect on that, and then we will say the prayers.